All right. Up next, uh, first off, if if you are in the music writing industry or just a mu- music fan, you probably at some point in your life have had a copy of the Trouser Press Guide, like on your bookshelf or near your bed. So, uh, as a person who that definitely applies to, it's quite an honor tonight. Uh, Aya Robbins is a veteran music journalist, born and bred in New York City. In 1974, he co-founded the Trouser Press magazine and served as his publisher until 1984. He edited five Trouser Press record guides, in addition to several other music books. He was a pop music editor of New York Newsday in the, in the 90s and had contributed to many publications over the years, from Cream, Circus, and Rolling Stone, to Entertainment Weekly, The New York Times, Mojo, and Salon. These days, when he's not really about politics on Facebook, he works in radio and writes fiction. He self-published his first book, Kick, Kick It Till It Breaks, in 2009. Tonight, he'll be reading, for the first time anywhere, uh, a chapter from his as-of-yet-unpublished novel, Mark Bolin, Killed in Crash. Everyone, Ira Robbins! down front so like more people can squeeze in. I think there's people stuck outside. Are you got your phone uh, No, that's all right. All right. Too complicated. Um, so I wanted to make some off-the-cuff uh, introductory remarks, so I wrote them down and then I edited them four or five times, which is <laughs> sort, of, sort of my normal habit. Anyway, um, and I do want to thank a couple of people here tonight. Um, uh, Robin Eisgrau, who introduced me to Michael, who got me this reading, so thank you. Um, <laughs> John Dunbar, who did an edit on the book, which was incredibly helpful. And my wife, Christina Uzaitis, who picked the chapter that I'm going to read tonight. So uh, here's my first, my introduction before I read the piece that I'm going to read. So uh, after doing music journalism for a long time, I found my way to writing fiction. That led me to two discoveries. One, I am way more efficient when I have a deadline. It's taken me the better part of two decades to finish two novels. And two, what appeals to me is the opportunity to enter a fascinating time and place and feel my way around it. It's like crafting a memory of something that never happened. I have to confess here and now that I write about things that I didn't do, set in places I haven't lived, written in the voices of people who aren't me, using slang I wasn't raised to speak. One might call that cultural appropriation. I prefer to think of it as adhering to centuries of literary honor, pre-postmodern fiction of a type that is being pushed out by the solipsism of thinly veiled autobiography. There are tiny books in this, tiny bits in this book that did happen to me in some form. Settings and locales, uh, There are bits of this book that did happen to me in some form. Some of the bands and records mentioned are genuine and contemporary. The historical settings and locales are as accurate as I could make them, and a couple of the characters were written while I was actually thinking about real people. But this is a made-up story. Mark Bolin Killed in Crash, which is titled after a 1977 news box poster that's framed and hangs in our house, is not about him. It's set in London five years earlier, just as the glam rock era kicked into full gear. The narrator is Lila Russell, an ordinary 15-year-old living alone with her father in East Acton following her mother's death in a traffic accident. The story begins with Lila, who was, much to her displeasure, named after the Russian space dog Laika, finding a pocketbook on the tube and returning it to its owner, who was in the employ of a fading rock star named Chaz Bonaparte. This chapter is called Lila Alive. Uh, 
I actually prepared a soundtrack to this, but I think under the circumstances, it's a little too complicated to do. So I'm going to skip that. So just imagine like street noises of London at night. Okay. 1972, very specific. The shops of Soho were brilliant, and I went from window to window, reading Italian restaurant menus and wondering what sort of dirty business people got up to in the neon pulsing sex shops. I browsed the racks at a newsagent, looking for mentions of Chaz Bonaparte that might tell me something about Amanda's boss. I bought a kebab from a window and wolfed it down as the shadows got longer. On Warder Street, spectacularly dressed groovers stood cued under a sign that said Marquee. Colorful le leather boots, shiny trousers with shown-on stars, sewn-on stars, sorry, feather boas, velvet jackets cut tight. I asked the girl in gangster clobber and a man's hat what was going on. She said they were there to see a new group called Roxy Music. I crossed the street so I could stand on my own and eye the scene. Twilight led me to consider the as-yet-unconceived explanation of my day-long whereabouts that would be needed upon my arrival home. Really, though, I wasn't too worried. So long as I turn up with ten fingers and ten toes, unpursued by police or a ponce, with my maidenhood intact, really, what did it matter where I'd been or what I'd gotten up to? If it was going to be a problem for Dad, so what? Life was the endless sky above, and stray concerns about how any of that could matter to anyone else didn't feel like enough ballast to pull me back to Earth. My head float was interrupted by a cackling laugh I quickly tracked to a hard-looking bloke in a blue flight jacket standing apart from the queue, grinning and pointing, tossing, tossing coins overhead at the dandies. Other than the unlucky few who winced at the impact, the rest were doing their awkward best to pretend nothing was amiss. After a minute, he pivoted and pointed across the road, sort of at me, but I couldn't be certain. Look at the bleeding monkeys, will ya? They're all dressed up for the circus. He turned back. Where's your Dago organ grinder, monkeys? He flung another coin that clipped the ear of a boy in a yellow suit and creased up at the pained reaction, pounding a fist into his hip to punctuate his mirth. Those nearest to him backed away as much as the narrow sidewalk would allow, glancing furtively and whispering behind their hands. There was just one of him and loads of them, but I could see how easily one hard skin could easily intimidate two dozen fey posers, none of whom dared to speak up. Impressive it was. Pure bottle, taking outrageous advantage of people who lack any ability to defend themselves, as if I do. It really must be cool to have people fear you. Here, you lassie, what you looking at? All alone at the curb, I was now certain of his gaze. He came closer, walking in a rolling swagger, as if his pants were chafing or his bollocks were too big to fit between his legs. I could feel the blood drain as I shifted from observer to object, and, in a sidelong snap, just as his imposing figure filled my frame, saw the queue shuffling into the club, the gaily-dressed peacocks living their, leaving their big city fears to dissipate into the musky night air as they reached the sanctuary of whatever lay inside. My world went quiet and still. I felt an imaginary spotlight fixed on me. My legs went a bit wobbly. A sour taste crept into my mouth, and it was hard to draw breath. Nothing I managed to eke out? I... In a few steps, he was on top of me, clenching my wrist firmly in a large hand. Up close, I could see him clearly in the streetlight. He was a piece of work, he was. Hard, scarred, and with eyes that did whatever the exact opposite of twinkle was. Caught in a muscle-freezing panic, I looked in vain for help, but saw only turned backs. I thought of crying out, but guessed that would only anger him. And anyway, there was no one around who looked willing or able to aid a damsel in distress. He reeked of sweat and booze and looked like a pirate, scarred, scaly, snarly, loud. 
Only the weak chin undercut the fearsomeness. He flashed a crooked grin of rotten teeth and laughed, a sad faraway noise that did bugger all to re reassure me that this wasn't going to end badly. He looked me straight in the face but betrayed no expression. I could only imagine the terror showing in mine. His grip wasn't cruel and I didn't bother pretending to struggle. It's not like I could have done anything. He let the moment hang for ages. I'm deaf, yeah? The last thing you'll ever see. You'll do what I say or you won't live to see the sunrise in the morning. He laughed, but I was still terrified. I may have left out, let out some properly frightened noise, but I don't know. Oh, for fuck's sake, don't wet yourself, girlie. It was already too late for that. I didn't dare look down, but he had most assuredly scared the piss out of me. I'm not going to hurt you, just winding him up. You don't look like one of them pricks. I fucking hate those poofs. He either didn't notice or care that no one was looking at us. Maybe he was like them, always believing himself the center of attention. He definitely had my full attention. I just got out of Nick and need a bit of fun. I prayed it wasn't going to be anything dirty. He pulled me roughly across the road, stopping traffic to the club door. Let's have a look at what these cunts get up to when they reckon no one from the real world is there to see. There was no discussion of a membership fee or whether I was old enough for admittance. Death simply leaned in and glared at the bloke by the till, and that sufficed. I said nothing. I presumed my chances of survival were better inside the club with a pile of people than alone on the street with this monster. Those who'd seen him outside widened their eyes and swiftly parted to let him pass. Those who didn't move were simply excavated out of the way as we headed to a bar along the far wall, my feet doing their best not to get tangled. At least the lights were on, so I could see where... So I could see. What are you having? I'll stand you around, little thing. He grinned and let go of my arm. I debated whether that signaled the end of his interest in me or a test that I needed to pass. I guessed it was the latter and stayed standing where I was. Cider, please. Having managed that, I looked around a bit, registering the low ceiling and dark walls, the heat, humidity, and the smell of old beer. The stage, at least what I could see of it, was a hive of lads moving gear around. With the crowd surging to and fro and all the practical action taking place, I started to relax, at least to the point where I didn't expect to die in the foreseeable two or three minutes. Here, give us two ciders then, sharpish. No locking about, boyo. Before the barman could finish pouring the drinks, the room lights went off and the crowd cheered as the stage filled with the wildest collection of people I'd ever seen. A riot of quiffs and feathers, tuxedos, sunglasses, spacesuits, and teddy boy gear. It was like a science fiction panto. I gaped for a rapt moment and then came to my senses and realized this was my chance, with the ready-made excuse that I wanted a better look. I gave a quick glance to check that death was also focused at the stage and guessed the barman was co contemplating the wisdom of requesting payment. I pushed myself headlong into the throng, aiming for the entrance, half expecting to be grabbed from behind. Then the music started. Whatever thoughts I had about running out evaporated. I was riveted by the sonic frenzy that surrounded me. Make me a deal. My need to escape was set aside. Teenage Rebel of the Week, definitely not just yet. I can't say that my fear of death was alleviated that moment, but I was definitely distracted from it. What I was seeing, hearing, and feeling was a lot more compelling than my fears. I squeezed into a spot by a wall between a couple of very tall boys in old-fashioned fur coats and kept an eye out for death who had not left the bar so far as I could see. I guess drink was more important to him than little old me. A poster on the wall by my head identified the evening's bands as Roxy Music and UFO. I didn't know which one this was. Either name seemed equally likely to what was happening on stage. Getting my courage up, but making sure to stay as far from the bar as I could, and calculating that a trip to the loo could be suicidal, I, slipped, I slid between people to get closer to the stage. Up close, I had to admire the outfits and the crazy makeup that made everyone look like a movie star. 
I looked down at my disgusting clobber and started thinking that I should make an effort. I didn't want to be one of this lot, but seeing how much better people could make themselves look made me think it might be wise to do the same. What if I didn't have to be a total prat my whole life? I wondered what lipstick and eyeshadow might do for me. The sound was a riot of elements, sax, guitars, squonking, plinks and bonks, dapper singing drums, all going at once. I'd seen a symphony orchestra once, and this was a lot less focused. The music was so loud that I only caught bits and pieces of what the bloke banging the piano was singing. With black hair slicked back, a shiny shirt, and leather trousers, he waggled his ass like a dog shaking off a bath. He kind of warbled, like one of those real old guys on the records my grand used to play. At one point, they counted off a sequence of numbers that sounded very scientific. The guitar player's glasses made him look like a gigantic fly, but he played like a demon. Weirdest of all was this blonde bloke, leastways I think it was a bloke, wearing angel wings and tons of makeup who was stood facing a pile of wired up gizmos and tape recorders off to the side. I had no idea what any of this was, but surrendering to it made me feel more excited and alive than I'd ever been in my life. Totally brilliant. If this was where the future of pop music was headed, I couldn't see how my generation would be prepared to follow, but I knew that I was. The show ended and it felt like the sun had set on a bright summer day. Things had been all colorful and alive one minute and then silent and gray the next. Made me sad, it did. The audience, which had pushed forward with frightening fervor, dispersed to the bar and the exit. Maybe this was like the up and down of drug taking. Possibilities swirled. Was it like this every night at the marquee? Were there dozens of other bands as good as this? I looked at the departing faces to search for answers, but it didn't feel right to talk to any of them. This was theirs. I was just a keen tourist. I looked around to see if death was still lurking about, but I couldn't see him or a commotion that would mark his presence. With escape finally desirable and possible, I hurried to the street, grabbing a schedule of upcoming concerts on my way out. The layout of Soho has always been a bit of a puzzle to me, but I have a fair sense of direction and reckoned I could find my way to Oxford Circus. The air was warm in the dark with a thickness that promised rain. Water Street led to Brodick and then to Berwick. As I neared the corner of Darblay, a sign I could barely make out in the weak light, I heard a dog barking. I probably wouldn't have paid it any mind, but the sound was strangled, pitiful. I'm no do-gooder, but I guess the animal was hurt and in need of help. It was too dark to see up the road until the headlamp of a motorcycle turning the corner provided welcome illumination. I could make out the back of a man with a knee planted on a dog's back, lashing it with a belt. It took a moment to work out what I was seeing, but when the penny dropped, I cried out in shock. The man turned and looked. It was death in a t-shirt. I'd gotten away only to find him. Raising his voice over the dog's strangled baying, he yelled, Fuck off, you cunt! This has nowt to do with ya! I wasn't sure if that was true or not, but I stayed put. He either didn't recognize me or remember me or couldn't see me in the darkness. He fucking pissed on me, he shouted, as if arguing his case for justified brutality be before an invisible street court. I moved a few steps closer as he resumed the vicious business. Suddenly, all the loose ends of my psyche connected. Dead mother, dead space dog, killer motorcycle, cruelty, terror, courage, shame, resentment. It was surely not a conscious thought, and I don't even remember making a decision about what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. All I felt was energy and anger formed as blinding white light that obliterated the details of my vision. I put my head down and ran at him like a torpedo, nailing him square on the head with my shoulder. He fell backward and the dog scrambled up, bleeding and baying, its eyes wild. Screaming words I didn't know were in my vocabulary with seemingly inexhaustible breath, I kicked death with, with instinctive random savagery wherever I could see a spot. 
Death looked to be a solid and scarred brawler, but I don't suppose a hardened thug expected to be set upon by a small teenage girl. Boozy battles with slags from time to time? No doubt there'd been those, but I'd bet this was different. And to his disadvantage, he was currently on the ground. For a moment, he was amused and made no effort to rise, but drink had slowed his reflexes, and it took him a few beats to comprehend the battle to which he was now joined. Maybe he didn't expect I could do much damage. As he tried to get back up on his feet, ready to flatten me, the dog grabbed a hold of his jeans and with a furious tug, pulled him back down, waving its bloody head like an insane pinball flipper before dashing back to a safe remove to continue licking its wounds. The dog barked at me, I thought, and I guessed it was my turn. I ran up and booted Death square between his legs. He howled and the dog took it as his cue, running past me to clamp his jaws on the same spot. Death screamed and flopped about like a fish out of water. I noticed the nun's stronger tattoo on his bare arm and was about to laugh when I thought better of hanging about. I legged it down Poland Street, running until my legs were ready to burst. I found a doorway and ducked in to rest and take stock. I'd sweated straight through my shirt and smelled like a fishmonger's skip in the summertime. I checked to see if I still had any coins for the tube in my pocket. Riding home, I thought about what had happened, and it hit me that the secret, the thing I'd never done before, was not to think before you act. Don't give it a first thought, much less a second one. Weighing the risks, judging the benefits, considering the angles, those were all stupid excuses for inaction and a recipe for certain failure. Just fucking do it. Just fucking do it, and they'll never see you coming. Just fucking do it, and then get the bloody hell out of there. That's how to beat the odds. Logic is for losers. That surge of unfamiliar confidence felt, a way, felt like a way to deal when things got bad. I decided I would try and cling to that rule as long as I could. As the underground rumbled along, I sensed that I had grown up. Not that I planned to go around assaulting skins, but I had gone ev- against every ounce of sense I'd been taught and always carried with me, and that felt momentous. Maybe I'd finally done Mum proud. She would understand. After all, she had me, and parenthood can't be a decision you weigh too carefully, right? Or you'd never do it. Nearing home, I walked taller and tried on the feeling that I was the sort of girl who faced her fears. I dug that. It was like having a shield, even though it was entirely internal. I could act on impulse and do the right thing. I could only imagine the sort of trouble this might lead me into. I had not properly considered the beating I might have got had the dog not pitched in, then dismissed that as the kind of fretting that would have stymied the old me into doing nothing. The new me, at least I hoped, would do what was needed without worrying the risks. We'll see how that goes. Transmission production. Hey!